Are we, are we on? Are we, are we Europe? What the truth is and how it should be told. I think there are a lot of borders to be broken. You can build it together. Community. And I believe in Josh. Open minds, open borders, openness. Try to make Europe sexy. With all sense. Sense. Are we? Are we? Are, are we, we Europe? Europe? <laughs> <laughs> what up? Are we Europe? Boom. You're about to listen to our live radio show. In Brussels, our editorial team met at the Jockey Cafe to discuss Beyond the Headlines of War, our latest issue. From design to language to pictures, they explained the difficult choices behind the publication of a magazine about war. Hi. We are going to pick up the pace again uh, of this pop-up radio show with Matteo Dressler, um, policy advisor at the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Hi, Matteo. Thank you Hello. for coming. Nice for having me. Thanks Can you for maybe me. quickly introduce yourself? Right. Um, as you already said, a policy advisor for democracy participation and use at the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. For those of you, most of you who don't know what that is, is basically a political foundation close to the social democratic party family uh, on the European level. Thank you. And so you've recently published a report called The War in Ukraine Through the Eyes of Youth. What exactly is the report about? Right, so the report is part actually of a bigger research pro uh, project called Builders of Progress, where we look at young people's uh, opinions, young Europeans' opinions, especially around the corona pandemic, um, but also their main concerns in general, what they want from out of the EU for the next years. But this report specifically looks basically at um, young Europeans' opinion on the war in Ukraine, so it's very recent as well. Um, survey was conducted um, in the end of March, beginning of April. Mm -hmm. You said survey. How did this report come about? Right, so it's a survey of about 7,000, a couple more people, which we conducted in seven European countries, six of them in the European Union and then the UK as well. And we interviewed or surveyed rather um, people between 18 and 38 um, on their opinions. Um, right, and like I said, it's, it's, it's rather recent, about six, six weeks old, seven weeks old, the, the, the data we collected. Interesting, because as far as I could find, uh, it was the only report that really told us much about you know, what young people are, are thinking today. Why was it important for you to focus on this generation of younger Europeans? Right. Um, first of all, I think it's important because for most of those people in those two generations, you would say millennials and Generation Z, it is the first war in their direct neighborhood experience. Of course, we, we did have the Balkan Wars. We shouldn't ignore them, but most people are too young to have remembered them as a formative experience, especially those in the Euro EU countries. And then secondly, uh, as you said, it is, there was a lack of actually um, information on what young people think about the topic, and that's, that's why we thought it is important to, to do this report. Thank you. Well, the survey uh, was performed at a time in which the European Union showed a surprising reaction speed with the announcement of sanctions, of deliveries of bilateral military equipment. We had a temporary protection scheme for people uh, fleeing Ukraine. We still have it. And we have, of course, the accelerated measures to 
deconnect ourselves from Russian energy. Um, how did you try to represent this new reality in the questions that you asked the young Europeans? Right, so we basically did, did two things. We asked um, about the concerns that uh, war would spread also across the EU. Uh, to young people, and then we um, focused a lot on what young people think about the reactions of the EU to the war, which you just mentioned, some of protection schemes, sanctions, military aid. What do they think about it? Are, do they approve it? Do they um, reject these kind of measures? Um, right. This is, this is kind of how we try to capture it in the questions. Sounds like such a valuable uh, set of data for democratic processes. Do you hope that anything is going to be done with this? Well, I would I would hope that um, I mean, as part of, of, of the job we do as a, as a foundation, we do have connections to um, yeah, especially the European Parliament and EU institutions, and of course try to also bring to them the findings to inform their work. That being said, opinion research should never be the only thing which uh, leaders kind of focus on. They should also be driven by values. But to make informed decisions, we hope to contribute, of course, uh, to this debate of also bring young people's opinion to the table, basically. Yeah. You already uh, told us what the first question was that you asked uh, everybody. Um, so I would love to go through some of the results with you. Um, how concerned were they about the war? That was the first question that you asked them. What was the general consensus? What was the general response to that? Right. So the exact framing of the question was basically how concerned are you that war would spread to, to other places in Europe? And we had about 60% of, of young people across all the seven countries saying that they think this is likely and uh, yeah, next five years. I should add. So that's quite a high number, but there were, of course, also big differences um, between the countries. For example, in the UK, you have a very high number of 70% of young people thinking that the, that the war might spread. I think it's also just interesting to see that 60% is concerned about the war spreading to their EU countries and the UK, because the UK uh, is included. While, of course, we have all these systems in place, right? We have NATO, we have the EU, which should all uh, prevent that from happening. And the UK was even most concerned of all, 70%. Is there anything that you can think of um, that explains why they're more concerned than, for example, France? Mm. Well, I should first state a, like a note of caution. Of course, this is not exactly what we could capture with a survey, right? For this, you would need to actually talk to people in this. That being said, there is a couple of things which presumably contribute to this. Um, for example, um, there's always been quite a tension between the UK uh, and Russia for years already, sanctions already before, specifically from the UK, much more still than from the EU in general. You had the poisoning of uh, Russian UK double agent Sergei Skripal and his daughter 2018 with radioactive substances. So that for some people that's quite close in time that might have already felt like a, a attack on UK ground. Of course, it's no comparison to what's happening in Ukraine, but still this kind of feeling, okay, they're, they're targeting people on, on our ground. This, this might have contributed um, yeah. to, to these high numbers in the UK. Of course, now we connect the survey to what is happening in, in, in real time, but is this fear of a war in Europe a new thing? This is actually quite interesting because at least how I perceived it, also in personal conversations, but also in the media debate, you often have this um, 
narrative that nobody could have imagined just a couple of years ago that war would come that close and it would be that, that widespread. Actually, um, our foundation has done a similar, asked a similar question in a survey about five years ago, 2016, um, in, in how far they think that war um, or conflict would impact their lives in a significant way, also to young Europeans. And already then, in 2016, 70% of the people thought that, that that would happen. It's a slightly different question, but this concern seems to have been around for some more time than is maybe widely assumed. So this is... Yeah. Um, from the media, let's switch to policy. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that this general atmosphere of anxiety and, and, and fear um, has caused any changes or any influence into policymaking? Well, I don't think I can speak directly on how the fear has, for, for example, impacted policymakers. I mean, that that's something per perhaps also for historians to find out. What I can say is that what has happened in terms of the sanctions, the military aid, which has been provided, it is historic, it's unprecedented, because the EU has never provided lethal um, military equipment, in other words, weapons, to a country under attack in, in, to this capacity. So this is really new. So yeah, mm -hmm. there's certainly be a, been a reaction which we haven't seen before in this, this scope. Yeah. Yeah, and of course we have on the reaction on the EU level, but we also, uh, every nation is its own nation, uh, it, capable of making its own decision. And I think Germany also reversed a long-standing policy. Right, um, yeah, myself being a German, I mean, German defense policy has long kind of avoided um, spending a lot on their military for uh, obvious and good reasons. Also, the way kind of uh, yeah, working through through the history of the, the Second World War and, and the Nazi regime. But now, um, in, in fact, um, the, the parliament is deciding on a, a large, a very large um, kind of budget, new budget for the military, saying, okay, something has changed uh, in European security architecture and we need to better protect ourselves as Germany, but of course it's always also seen in an EU context. Also the neighbors around us, we are one of the biggest countries, we, we should do that. So that, that is really a, a kind of a sea change of, mm -hmm. of what has happened the last 30 years in terms of, of foreign policy and defense policy in Germany. Yeah, I know this is not part of your survey, uh, but maybe part of your personal uh, conversations that you have with fellow Germans. Has that change, how has that change been perceived in public opinion in the people around you? Um, you mean the, the, the additional support yes. for the military? Mm, I think it, it's mixed. I think there's a general feeling in Germany, but it's, it's specific that the German army is in a very bad shape. Even though they received a lot of money before, it's just mismanaged. So I think there is um, there's a certain appreciation that maybe this could be fixed, because if you're already spending a lot of money, maybe then it should at least work. But of course, there's also uh, voices which say uh, more, yeah, pacifying voices saying, "Well, we don't, we cannot solve this this conflict in a military way." So I think in in my personal circles, I have both. Like, mm. maybe nobody's super excited and spending large amounts of uh, taxpayers' money on the on the army, but there's certainly people seeing the need for it right now. Yes. Yeah. 
To, uh, to go back to another question from the survey, you asked people if EU countries should spend more on their military. Just maybe, first off, to clarify, are we talking about the EU budget or national budgets going to national armies? Right, we didn't actually specify this in our question, but um, just as an information, of course, uh, most military budget is still spent on, on national state level and we do have EU defense cooperation, etc., but it is m still minor if you combine all mm -hmm. EU uh, national budgets. Mm -hmm. um, so what was the response to that? Do people want to pump more into the military now? Yes, it is. In fact, 64% of young people, which we surveyed, said that it's a good idea to, to increase military budgets, but uh, you have large differences also between countries. So, for example, in Italy and France, there is a less appetite uh, for increasing military budget. It's around 50%. But then you have those countries which are um, especially yeah, most affected as they're close to the border or the UK, which uh, say up to 70% of young people, 75% say that they would like an, to see an increase in military budget. Mm. Which feels a little bit, I mean, of course, I, I completely understand with everything that's going on that that will be a general sentiment, but it also feels almost counterproductive to the EU promise of, you know, this, this peace project. Um, any personal opinions on that? I think it's a difficult conversation, which is not happening, like, like you, you ask as well, on personal level, but also on EU level, what, what that all means. I, I guess there is also politicians, also on EU level, see a need for, for stronger defense. But of course, how, how far do you want to go and how when does it get too much also and in terms of building up a threat which you cannot take back? And that, that's a dynamic, mm -hmm. of course, which many of us probably do not know, more from history, from the Cold War, but yeah. Yeah. Could you think, uh, do you think these sentiments could maybe translate into a step away from national armies and and into a single European army. Right, that, that is in fact the question we asked and um, the interest in that is, is a bit lower. So we have about just under 50% of young people saying that they're interested in merging all national armies into EU army. Um, with 35% saying this is not something we should do. And interestingly, we had asked a similar question in November 2021, so before, before the war, and those numbers have actually not changed dramatically. So there's not more appetite now than it was five mm. months ago for merging the army. That could potentially be because um, people are more aware of NATO in terms of defending also European countries and that they yeah. think maybe it's not needed, but that would need uh, more looking into. Further research. Further research. <laughs> <laughs> One of the more challenging um, and almost kicking, kicking people's feet uh, question that you have in the survey is if the respondents would favor or oppose the European Union taking military action in Ukraine, even if it risks a nuclear conflict with Russia. Right. And the answer here is quite surprising because 42% of young people say that they would um, favor it or what, that they would run with it even if it would uh, risk a nuclear war. Now we have to be careful with that, first of all. That is, so it's a big number, it's still the minority that is important to, to point out. Secondly, I think we, because it is a survey and not like an in-depth study with a lot of interviews where we could ask for the reasons why people answer this way, I think there's again a need to, to dig deeper. Is it because people they don't think it's actually likely that a nuclear war will happen. So they just say, yes, we would risk it, but actually we know it's not happening. It could be. It could also be um, that they don't actually know enough 
what a nuclear war could imply because it's not something mm. which has been necessarily part of the reality of many young people, especially because most of them are either born after the Cold War or at least not being socialized during the time. And certainly it could, of course, also mean, and that's uh, something I just came back from a bigger workshop on democracy with a lot of young people as well, but I heard it could also be value-driven indeed that um, there are strong values in, in terms of if a democratic country sovereignty is attacked without any reasonable justification that they would be risk, uh, willing to risk it all. I've heard that yeah. also from young people, also from Poland, Hungary, Germany over the, mm. the last two days. So it could be... Could out be of principle. Out of principle. So, But yeah. this would certainly need a digging deeper. Yeah. yeah. So, of course, 42%, it is the minority, but it's a very big minority. It's all, I mean, it's almost 50 to, to, well, give, it, to give it another 8%. <laughs> no, well... <laughs> Do you think any of these decisions uh, or yeah, these actions on, on whether the EU should um, in, get more involved uh, should ever be an action based on democratic principles, direct democracy? Um, well, I'm, I'm not an expert necessarily on defense cooperation and how exactly this works. Of course, it would be nice that if anything like of that scale is ever decided, it, it needs to have some, some solid democratic backing. But that being said, also um, from yeah, just consuming the media, etc., it seems also highly unlikely, especially that the EU would act in this way. So maybe the, the question was also a little bit, bit misleading because if there was ever somebody acting in terms of boots on the ground type of conflicts, it would probably be NATO. That being said, NATO leaders have throughout the conflict and even before stated that they want to stay out of that. Sure, there's a lot of military aid, but in terms of actually going in with soldiers, airplanes, etc., that's something they, they try to strictly avoid. So, right. The survey kind of pivots at that point, and uh, it starts talking about our dependency on Russian energy. Quite unsurprisingly, 65% of everybody who responded to the survey wants to depend less on fossil fuels. Um, but that debate has been going on for a much longer time, of course, with all, uh, you know, everything related to the climate movement. Has the war really changed our opinion on it? Or is it kind of a logical transition into a more renewable energy? Right. I think it, it's two things. It's it's the debate continues in terms of we need to do something to, to slow down at this point, maybe not stop, but slow down climate change. But it probably get, got also a new framing in terms of this energy independence kind of discussion, which maybe was before rather technical and on a political level, maybe people are more aware of that now. Oh, we are really dependent, at least in some countries, on Russian resources, Russian gas. So this this dimension is perhaps, at least in the wider public, a little bit newer. So it just adds to what was there, just, just another reason to, to kind of speed up that transition, right? And as a closing question, uh, you probe into people's fondness of a strong European Union in the survey. Has the idea of the European Union as a project gained a lot of new traction with its younger constituents? Well, we asked two questions which relate, relate to this. One was more how um, young people see the EU as a global player and if they want to see it speaking with a unified and stronger voice representing basically the EU also in this, this conflict. And here we see about 50% of young people who say, yes, the EU should, should 
get a stronger voice, but we also see 35% of the people say, ah, no, it's gone too far already. National state should, should actually have this capacity. So it's certainly the biggest number is for strengthening the role, but there's also still a big number who say national states should take that on. The second question we asked is more looking inwards. So should the EU uh, unify more, integrate better? And there you have much more support. Um, we're looking at 60% of young people saying we need more of that. Um, so yeah, in a nutshell, the support is, is a bit stronger for internal unification. Um. Okay, well, maybe to bring it back to you, uh, how do you look at the future? Because this is a very future-oriented uh, mm. survey and issue even. How do you look at it? Well, um, I think some of the tasks or like challenges like we're facing now, especially with the war in Ukraine, but also climate change, they always seem very daunting. But I also think... Uh, instead of perhaps hiding in a corner and pitting ourselves, I think it's important to try to contribute to, to changing some of the things which we are facing in whatever capacity we have to do so. And um, some of the, maybe one last finding, um, we had also where the priorities for young people for the future of the EU, and one of mm -hmm. them was, for example, to tackle inequality and poverty. So whatever we do in the future to tackle some of these challenges, I think this should always be, be done also in a spirit of solidarity, bringing everybody along. So some of, for example, on climate change, some of the people who have fewer resources are more affected, and of course those um, uh, also in Ukraine which have fewer money or are marginalized are having maybe a bit harder time to also leave the places where they are, so to, to especially look, look uh, to, towards helping them and supporting them. Yeah, yeah. in a very intersectional way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Yes. Well, thank you so much for being here. Is there going to be a follow-up report? Um, yes, so in fact, this was actually um, a smaller report which we decided to do because it was very pressing need, but actually there's going to be um, a bigger report which we're going to launch uh, in the end of September, which asks wider questions, like I mentioned in the beginning, like um, what, what where are the main concerns of these two generations, Generation Z, Millennials, especially against the background of the pandemic, the war, but also what they um, see um, in the future of the EU, and we have many more questions on this kind of what the EU should be looking like, what policies should they work on. Um, yes. Interesting. Well, I'm very much looking forward to that. Thank, Thank you so you. much for coming. Is there any question from the audience? Thank you. Um, I think across the EU, we see more and more Eurosceptics, like parties or just voices coming up. Do you think this war may change something in that regard? I think that is an extremely important and interesting question. I don't think we have a good answer right now on that. I mean, if you look at like the, the recent election campaigns and I mean they're kind of going on but not presidentially anymore in France did it hurt some of the populists we have like Marie Le Pen she has the strongest results ever and she was known to be close with Putin the pictures with her and him were all over the place so it didn't look like that we can talk about Viktor Orban which is known and continues I mean Marine Le Pen at least try to bring some distance between him and her, but probably only publicly. Viktor Orban certainly didn't. And I mean, he just won the election by a large margin, larger than even he himself um, thought. And he didn't really get rid of his pro-Russian rhetoric during that election campaign. 
in other countries like Germany, um, the, the, the kind of pro-Russian rhetoric by the alternative Deutsche and alternative Germany, it, it doesn't really help them. But I think it depends on the country, but I don't think it doesn't, doesn't really hurt them a lot. But it, it's going to be something which we'll have to see in the future also with all the... Uh, which is probably something you with the magazine are more aware of with all the campaigns on fake news, etc., trying to kind of steer the pro-Russian narrative also within Europe yeah. to get support. We'll see, I guess. Yeah, um, indeed. We, we, we do see, at least in the beginning of the war, we, we still saw a very, very, very large number of misinformation. Uh, but there's also so many new projects and so many companies, technology popping up fighting it, that hopefully if people vote for a certain uh, rhetoric, they will at least know what they're voting for. Yes, of course. I'm sorry, Matteo, I did not tell you that there might be questions from the audience. In fact, I, I wasn't aware there was an audience. I thought it was, <laughs> I thought it was only audio, but I now I know. I thought it was nice. kind of implied if you're doing a pop-up radio show in a coffee shop. But yes, maybe I didn't think far enough. <laughs> Don't worry, it's an easy question. Um, from the survey, were there any particular results um, from a certain question from a certain country that surprised you that went against what your assumption would have been? Well, I think some of the ones we discussed, I didn't know personally a lot about the UK, so that, that was surprising. One, maybe to add again to the UK, there is a lot of, it's a, it's a question we didn't uh, discuss now, there is a lot of support for both um, investing public money to help refugees and also uh, in taking refugees into the country, which if you follow the news as I do, it's nothing I expected. I don't have a lot of British friends, but apparently, and this is also got explained to me by my co-author, which, which happens to be British, like the public pro kind of refugee sentiment is very strong. It's more on the government side that they're trying to stop that and they're even being sued for not letting more Ukrainians in. So this, I think this, this, is, this is one surprising, uh, surprising finding uh, I could mention. And another one maybe, which is something I learned, is that um, support in Italy for sanctions and for trying to stop Russia basically from what it's doing is, is rather weak. And that's because a lot of they have a lot of populist and very strong right, very strong left, but also the five star movements, parties which have some kind of pro-Russian sentiment, which is also anchored in in in, in the population. And there's still the majority of Italians in favor of a lot of these things, but it's weaker than in other countries. And this is also something which I wasn't aware myself before that much. First, we would like to thank Matteo Dressler for taking the time to contribute to our live event. He was interviewed by Annalen Ophoff, our editor-in-chief. This episode has been produced by Are We Europe, mixed and edited by me, Jada Santana, and Neja Borkovic. Thanks for listening. <laughs>